listening to Carnivore Conversations, a podcast exploring the benefits of keto, carnivore, intermittent feasting, and other lifestyle hacks. Each week, we'll be interviewing a special guest from the keto carnivore community and so much more. This is your host, board-certified and practicing physician, Dr. Robert Kiltz. Well, welcome, welcome, everyone. Uh, Dr. Rob Kiltz, Carnivore Conversations, and I'm really, really grateful that Dr. Tony Hampton has joined us today to talk about his experience in healthcare and how he is a driving force in improving everyone's health and wellness. Dr. Hampton, thank you so much for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, would you please? I would. And uh, thank you again for also joining me for my podcast. I really appreciate that. And the more we get the message that the animal-based diet is important and should be an option is going to be very key. I'm shocked there's not more people yelling and screaming that, but thank you so much for that. And, you know, I'm a, a family doctor. Uh, I, I help folk with obesity and chronic diseases in the Chicagoland area. I was actually uh, raised by a single mom. I have an older brother. Uh, we all lived on the west side of Chicago. They called it the tough side of the city. But, you know, once you're there and you're living it, you don't know any of that stuff. And um, but what really helped me interesting enough, Doc, was when I we moved from uh, the heart of west side to closer to a suburb called Oak Park. And literally right across the street from me was this tennis court and the tennis court was important because it allowed me to see the world through a different lens. And, and while others in my community would kind of go further west back into the heart of the city, I was going kind of into Oak Park to find people to play tennis with. And, and then I noticed that it wasn't just that they had more resources, but it was this idea that they, they thought differently. Their parents taught them different values. And and I always thought that when you had things, somebody handed it to you. And then I learned quickly <laughs> that that's not it at all, that people who have things, for the most part, earn it, they work hard, and uh, there's, there's no sense of privilege. So I think for me, growing up in the city on the west side, I had to tell the two cities, one where people maybe struggled, then I had this nice suburb right next to it. And I saw both worlds, which made me comfortable in both worlds as well. So having that balance and being able to see the world through two lenses helped to shape the man I am today. Well, tell us a little bit about what the deciding point was to go into medicine and journey into healthcare. Yeah, you know, becoming a doctor is a very interesting, uh, you know, thing that a lot of parents want their kids to do, right? But for me, you know, um, there's a high school in the city called Lane Tech High School where I went. And that high school was really known for, uh, you know, architectural programs. And so when I went there, I thought that was my destiny. Later found out that uh, drafting boards and things like that wasn't really, you know, who I was. It just wasn't. And interesting enough, about 10 years ago, they uh, stopped that program at Lane Tech uh, in lieu of people not being as interested. And I think they lost some of their really, uh, really experienced teachers. So, so, so during the second half of my high school, I had to start thinking what, you know, what am I going to do? And I knew I wanted to be helpful to people. So I started thinking about things like, you know, maybe being a tennis instructor since I was a tennis player. Uh, I thought about being a teacher, but then when you come from a, a single parent home with limited resources, it's, it's, you know, my goal was to be able to one day help my mom. Right. So I said, I got to do something that's going to put me in a better position. So I thought about attorney and a doctor. And I thought about when I thought about the attorney, it's kind of funny. I thought about, you know, am I a Perry Macy, Mason type? You know, am I going to be able to get in front of people and, you know, debate their cases? And I just never thought that was me. Although ironically, I think I can do it now. And so that left me with the doctor thing. And I, I ended up wanting to do that because I could help people. My mom would tell you that when I was probably around 11 or so, I fell, I cut my hand, I still have the little scar in the middle of my hand right here. And uh, when I when I went to get that looked at at Cook County Hospital, she said that um, this is something that uh, I said to her at the time, I don't feel anything, I would love to be able to help people not feel pain. So that was kind of like 
what my mom tells me. And that's what got me into medicine. And when I started my journey, it was most of the traditional, let's diagnose things and, you know, give people the right medicine. Uh, I know Zempic's been in the news lately. And, uh, and I thought, you know, that's what I'm going to do. And then later, uh, because, you know, I had kids, you know, I have two boys, they're now in their 20s. And I started my journey with diet and, and, and to my practice trying to make my kids healthy, right? So I, I remember getting this book, um, How to Disease Proof Your Kids uh, by Dr. Joe Furman. And once you go down the plant-based path, you kind of get looped into that. So I did that uh, with my family for about eight years. But then my wife developed type 1 diabetes. And when she developed that, she was not very happy. She's a pharmacist. And I, I kind of made a decision at that point. You know what? Let me figure out how I can use lifestyle to help her. And that's when I discovered that, uh, okay, you have a carb problem, maybe you should restrict the carbs. So that kind of led me down the low carb path. And then that later turned into keto and then more recently into carnivores. So we're kind of uh, ketovores in this house and carnivores. And it's really been uh, awesome for my patients because they have really benefited from this pros. When I was kind of you know, encouraging vegetarian lifestyles. They did okay with that, but I couldn't get that, you know, adherence to that. And I found that I really wasn't taking people off medicine. When I started low carb and keto, and for some carnivore, it's been like magical. So for me, uh, that healing spirit of being a doctor was renewed once I understood that food is medicine. So it's been, it's been like a, a joy to go to work every day. So in, in medical school and residency, uh, you learned, likely like myself, not much about nutrition, or at least not the way we're learning it today. And did you ever feel a sense that what you were telling your patients was actually contributing to their sickness? I didn't. I, I honestly was so um, convinced that if I just follow the guidelines my patients would do better. And I think I got caught up in this, this illusion that uh, my patients simply weren't doing the things I recommended. I did feel better, for example, when I went from the standard American diet to more of a plant-based diet. What I discovered as I was trying to help my patients was that although I got a few people to kind of agree that maybe a clean plant-based approach was helpful, what I found is that they still struggled to follow that dietary pattern. Um, they, it was just such a culture shock for them. So, And then I noticed for myself personally, although I felt better than the standard American diet eating this way, because of the plants, which caused a lot of gas, a lot of bloating. And I just convinced myself that if the if the experts say that you need the phytonutrients and you need the antioxidants, and even if the Brussels sprouts cause harm in your belly, you'll get used to it. Just take some Beano. And, and what I realized is that no matter how much Beano I took, it wasn't enough. Yeah. Uh, I would always feel bad. And then again, then I discovered there was another way. And, and sometimes we get, we get into the matrix, I call it. Like if, you, if I start with Dr. Joe Furman, and that's what I see. We get caught up in the matrix and we can't see anything else. And I would say the same is true for carnivore. Everybody should be open to new information. Uh, they should always be critical of what, they've are, what they're learning. And they should always second guess everything, trust but verify. And that way, none of us get indoctrinated into a way of thinking that may not serve us tomorrow, even if it's serving us today. There's always a a better way. I never knew I needed, I wear, I got LASIK now, but I used to wear contacts. Right. And so when I was wearing, you know, you know, before I had glasses, like on your face right now, I didn't know that I couldn't see what very well. Yeah. I, I remember the first day somebody that the eye doctor put some glasses in my eyes and it, it didn't just get clearer that everything got brighter. And, and so for me, I think a lot of times we don't even know when we don't know something or haven't. So for me, be open to, a, you know, questioning what you believe. And, and if you keep doing that, you'll fine tune things. And that's kind of what carnivore did for me. It allowed me to kind of do a, 
you know, a, 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 an experiment. And I just, so when, and, and what I've learned now is that when I eat animals, I feel nothing in my belly. And when I eat plants, most of them don't make me feel that way. So I, so, so for me, I try to do the animal-based approach as much as possible. I'm not expecting my patients to go that far. I just tell them, let's, let's do an elimination diet. And then, and if you can tolerate some green beans or greens, that's fine. But if your body says no to that, then listen to your body. Well, so you, uh, where'd you go to medical school? I went to um, Chicago Medical School, which is like in um, like North Chicago, near a suburb called Lake Forest. And it's actually where a lot of the uh, basketball players for the Chicago Bulls used to kind of live in that area. Mr. T used to live in that area. So I, I would always see him drive by in his uh, Rolls Royce convertible. And uh, it was a very, very ritzy neighborhood. But but that's where I went to medical school. I, I did my residency and family practice at a, a place called West Suburban, which is not but blocks away from where I grew up, which is kind of cool. So it was this really good family practice training program. I did maternal child health fellowship, which is a, a family doctor who then learns to do C-sections, tubules, and DNC. So it's getting into your world a little bit. Uh, and I did, and then I worked as a family doctor who did those things for about uh, 10 years. Uh, <clears throat> I later transitioned to my large health system advocate, Aurora Health, uh, and now I have more of an adult population. And in that adult population, I pretty much take care of those chronic conditions. I do miss the baby business. I'm sure you <laughs> do as well. But I, I found that that was a nice sweet spot for me because the, the number of people you can impact is just beyond words. I mean, uh, so many people have given up hope. So by the time they see me and they're like, hey, um, we hear that you can help us get off medicine, they're just not hearing that from other clinicians. And, and again, it's the training. Uh, we don't talk about de-prescribing when we're training. We talk about you know maximizing the dose of the medicine so it'll be effective. Docs are not looking at the studies uh, that deal with nutrition as much as they're looking at the studies that deal with meds. So I think it's a, a paradigm shift that we need to get more clinicians to uh, value. And I think once they understand that it works and it's really effective, I think they'll be more likely to engage in that conversation. So what was the turning point for you to focus? Because I see you're an obesity specialist and you've written a book on fix your diet, fix your diabetes. And maybe you can tell us a little bit more of those two things. So I've got you into diabetes and what got you to writing that great book? Well, you know, the book, I mean, you have 15 minutes, right? So when you have a 15 minute appointment, you need to be able to have a resource. So my intent was to simply have a resource to answer a lot of the questions and provide guidance uh, for my patients. I also have a link tree uh, that I use uh, that'll then point them to the handout. And I made a video, how to do low carb. So I kind of, you have to make it quick, easy, and, and something they can digest. But the main thing that helped me shift my focus is really about, I have an MBA, right? So I said, well, what's the return on investment if I do a certain approach as a doctor? And what I found is if I spend a lot of energy and time on what yields the most results as a doctor, that makes sense. So I learned, so I learned about this idea of, you know, what makes people sick. And that, of course, leads to insulin resistance. And that, of course, I call myself, me and my wife, I'm the metabolic health doc. We call ourselves the metabolic health couple because we realize that if we help people achieve metabolic health, that'll deal with their uh, uh, risk for heart attack and stroke and dementia and, and, and cancer. And, and if we can do that, we'll get, you know, we'll hit like 70% of the medical conditions. So for me, it was shifting to that way of thinking. The book is a resource. And, and helping people understand that and making time. So when we have these very brief appointments, we use that time not just to refill medicines and to make sure they're getting their eye exams and things like that. We, we talk about nutrition every visit. If they come in and they're like, doc, I just got shot. And I'm like, okay, great. Let's deal with the gunshot. But by the way, if you want to heal well, we need to talk about nutrition. I talk about nutrition no matter what they come in for. And another example of how all of this stuff is the same, like for the blood pressure, most of my patients, when they first see me, they say, well, I'm trying to restrict salt, doc. And I say, okay, that's great. Uh, salt's part of the picture. 
but they, they've never heard of hyperinsulinemia. They've never heard that too much insulin leads to uh, the re, you know, reabsorption of sodium in the kidneys, which then leads to hypertension and, and heart disease. They, they haven't heard those terms. They've never heard that insulin resistance can then lead to uh, less production of nitric oxide. They may have heard of nitroglycerin that you take when you're having chest pain, but they didn't know that their arteries made this already. And the reason why it's not making it is because they became insulin resistant because of too much insulin because of the food they're eating. So once they connect the dots and I try to do that for them, and then I, I, I speak to their heart and say, man, if you, could, if you could move towards a model where you don't have to take medicine and instead you just eat the right way, would you be interested in that? And, and, and are there things you'd be willing to sacrifice to achieve that? So that's kind of the approach I take. And I think a lot of patients that resonates with them, because to be honest with you, they're not used to hearing doctors um, talk about not taking medicine. So even if a person comes to me and they're, if we think about hyperinsulinemia, we think about diabetes, right? So if they come to me and they're new to me and their A1C is 7 or 7.5, I'm the kind of doctor that I'm not, you know, I'll say, you know, here's the paths you can take. We can take the paths of medicine or we can take the path of root cause of why you have a high glucose and avoid that, that toxin, which is, you know, too much glucose. And most of them will say, you know what, I'll pass on the metformin. And that may be an issue in a, in a conventional health system where it's anticipated that you're going to give those things, right? I said, let's try that. Let's not become a human pincushion. Let's try. And what happens is most people are willing to do that. And, 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 and it's such a nice way to like begin a relationship with patients saying, I believe in you. I think you can do this. And let me give you that. Let me give you the information that will help you get there. So for me, it's been uh, a slam dunk. And I just, again, I, 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 my passion is to make sure at least people have heard this information and what they do with it, you know, I have no control, but I just want to make sure we get the message out. And that's, that's why my clinical practice has been so much more fun. I've always noticed in medicine where we often will look down the list of their problems, their blood pressure, their, 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 their laboratory results, and we will kind of sort of negatively approach this. Well, this isn't looking good. You're doing a terrible job. What are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this or that versus how you doing, you look great. Let's, what can I do to help you today? And what is your thoughts on sort of the, the we're, we're chastising them for the negativity, but we're not being the coach and cheerleader? Because it sounds like you're really working on the coach and cheerleader part yeah. to motivate people. Can you talk a little bit about that, Dr. Hampton? Yeah, I, I think that what my colleagues were not taught in school as much as they should have been is the importance of build, building rapport with people and helping them to understand that they've been successful in a lot of ways in their life, which is going to then give them the foundation to be successful with any challenge they face. I've always believed that rather we're dealing with a, a job situation, I'm a medical director, or uh, how we raise our kids. Um, we all have gifts, right? So, so if I have 10 things that my team needs to achieve to, you know, achieve our quality metrics, right? Um, we call it uh, PHI, you know, population health index. If my team achieves eight of those 10 things, right? Uh, I should be celebrating because that's pretty, that's a pretty good test grade, 80%, right? But what most organizations do, what most leaders do is they say, um, that was great, but there's a big, that's that but, B-U-T and capital. And then they focus on the two things you didn't achieve. And I just think that that's not a good way to motivate people. I, I have, now one of the things good about education is that a lot of times you will learn motivational interviewing principles. And so when I meet somebody, what I say to them, um, if they say they're eating the wrong things for breakfast, I, I'll just ask an open-ended question. So what are you eating for breakfast, right? And then I'll say to them, okay, sounds like you're eating uh, bacon, sausage, uh, oatmeal, and a banana. Uh, you may not know that the banana and the, and the oatmeal are going to raise your sugar, but you know, I think you're doing great because that's exactly what I ate. So I frame it from making it personal. And then I say, but, but would you be willing to focus on the 
bacon, sausage, and eggs instead. So they look at you funny, <laughs> but mm -hmm. but that's what I say. But I but I do an open-ended question and I keep it positive and saying, you know what, you're doing a great job. We're gonna tweak it just a little bit. And then I and then I'll see if they're if they're I, I try to build up their confidence. I, I give them some hope saying what's gonna happen if They do these things, things that you have done really well, even in a dietary perspective, even in terms of what they've done to lose weight. So, so I try to paint a picture of what life can look like. And a lot of times patients really appreciate that. And, and, then, I, and then I look at the person in front of me. And once I kind of know who they are and where, how motivated they are, then I start to throw all those resources at them, like my link tree and my handout. And, and any, uh, you know, how to do low carb video on YouTube. And if they really sound like a person, sometimes I'll feel like Dr. Joan Iflin's, uh, her questionnaire that talks about processed food addiction. And if they answer a lot of yeses, I'll say, well, we may have to uh, invest in that. So what I do is I make sure they have resources like your YouTube channel, Dr. Kim Berry and others, and, and make sure that they are able to understand that the problem has never been them. Most of the problem has been the information. Mm -hmm. And even when I think about me as a health leader, uh, one of the things I learned a long time ago that when, when things are broken, and I think it's called dimming, but, it's, it, but, but he talks about like 93% like of things that are not working well are not the uh, people, it's the process. And I think the process that we've been teaching people on how to lose weight and how to achieve health has been wrong. So we can't blame the people. We have to be honest with ourselves, look in the mirror and say, you know what? We didn't quite get that right. And maybe there's another way. And it's not the only way, but there's another way. And, and then we give people grace and say, hey, let's do an experiment. If this doesn't work, we'll try a different approach. And what I found is that when people are motivated and they're out of their you know, their, their crazy life, because life gets crazy, then they're able to achieve their goals. So you live in a large, or you work in a large healthcare system uh, as a leader there. Uh, how is it to implement this story of keto and carnivore in a system that typically didn't offer these ideas? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's not as hard as it appears. There, I do have to justify my recommendations in a way that if I say a person doesn't need to be on a statin, I need to... So I'll, I may put a, a comment in a note based on you know, a recommendation that's out there. You have a zero calcium score, for example. If you have a zero calcium score at American... Heart Association says even for a diabetic, they don't have to be on a statin. Now, that's contrary to every recommendation that now that may not be standard of care in the health system. But if I have a patient in front of me, that's so part of it is to frame the discussion around science. Um, the other part is that I am fortunate with Advocate Aurora Health to be in a health system that allows us, even though we're a medical group and we're a large health system, they do allow us to be have an individual practice model. So, so it's not likely that one day I'll get a call saying, you know, you can't have a YouTube channel. You can't talk about that. You're not a, and I'll be honest, one of the reasons why I got a master's in nutrition is to be able to say to people in front of me, you know, I'm board certified in obesity medicine. You know, I have a master's in nutrition, so I should be allowed to talk about nutrition. So I do, you have to play this game. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I have not had a lot of pushback. And, and, and I think part of that is because the results don't lie. And if you have a clinician who's working in a health system, who's taking people off medicine, then, you know, why would you then pen penalize that clinician, even if the rest of the system is not thinking the same way? So, so, so I just think you have to have a little courage. And, uh, and then what I try to do and what I've done in the past we do have a program. Since I'm on the south side of Chicago, there's probably the greatest need for this information. We know a lot of people of color have poor metabolic health for many reasons. So because of my excitement about this, I've been able to lead our healthy living program, which allowed me to get in front of 
large crowds of uh, our patients, maybe anywhere from 100 to 200. Uh, right before the pandemic, we did this fairly often. Uh, we have, of course, diabetes prevention programs and COPD programs for bronchitis and emphysema. And we focus on nutrition and other lifestyle approaches with that. We also have a, 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 you know, a, a food pharmacy where we give out food. Uh, of course, we tweaked it because the Chicago Food Depository, we had to tweak it so it's low-carb friendly. Um, but we do that at, at a few of our hospitals. And now we're going to be doing a smart farm. So we actually have land that we had leased out to others. And now we're bringing that land back in. And we're going to grow some of the food that we are going to be giving at our food pharmacy um, which will then allow us to have more food than even we got from the Chicago Food Depository. So, so it's really just having clinicians with a passion to help lead those kind of programs, letting our patients know that this type of approach actually is important because we're emphasizing it. The, the, the thing that we're working on now is, you know, let's bring some, some coaching uh, to the because we know a lot of the success or failure is based on not having that support, and I really want to do what Dr. Tro did, which is let's let's see if we can reduce the cost of care for our employees by introducing low carb to them, um, and and reduce the cost of care. Maybe get some folks off medicine, uh, reduce the expenses, particularly for those patients where that were responsible for their care. So those are kind of like the visions moving forward. I also am the medical director for FoodSmart. FoodSmart's kind of an app that provides directly kind of a coach slash nutrition person who's flexible enough to, um, you know, help somebody who's a vegan and somebody who's more animal-based. So I think we want to be flexible. We don't want to, you know, although I have a passion about animal-based diet, we want to meet people where they are let them do their own experiment. And then if that experiment leads them back to where we think they should be, that'll be great. We just want to give them, remove that fear that animal-based diets is harmful. In, in your experience, the social cultural norms within the communities, how do you help sort of unfold these ideas? Because diabetes and, and, and hypertension and many of these diseases are quite common I'm sure in the in the in the communities you're taking care of, how do you help sort of share the either a completely different dietary lifestyle or how do you modify it to fit in the cultural lifestyle people are in? Yeah, well, I think you you have to. For me, it's about bite-sized pieces. Um, and I'll be honest, I think one of the reasons why I've been more successful with a low-carb to carnivore approach versus plant-based is because it's much easier to say you can still eat the ribs. Would you be willing to use a, a keto or low-carb rub on the ribs? And by the way, saturated fat is not associated with heart disease. And I, I literally pull up the uh, Journal of the College of Cardiology position statement so they'll see it and they won't think I'm just some quack, right? That's just, you know, in the twilight zone. So, so part of it is, I think with the right information in front of people, they're more likely to uh, consider things that they hadn't considered. I just, I stay in their lane. Now, I am fortunate to be in a community where I'm, I kind of have a sense of what they enjoy. So if I say something like, I know, I know mac and cheese is a popular item, right? So if I say, well, you know, they got this cauliflower mac and cheese, would you be willing to experiment? And I may have to say to them, that the pasta and the cauliflower doesn't have a taste. And believe it or not, the taste comes from the, you know, maybe the heavy cream butter cheese and things of that nature. So what I do is I try to give them a vision of what this change would look like. And most people, believe it or not, as long as you don't take them too far from their comfort zone, are willing to uh, accept it. Thankfully, animal-based foods are highly desired by a lot of people. They mm -hmm. just thought it was harmful. So when you kind of focus in that direction, particularly with the guys, they just, they're just like so excited when you say ribeye, right? They, they, they feel like a sense. I literally talked to a good friend who was visiting uh, from the South. And uh, as I sat down with him, him and his, he was literally grabbing his wife, listen to Dr. Hampton. I told you the steak was okay. <laughs> so we have, and in, in the communities of color, let's be clear. 
because of Dr. Sabi and others on YouTube, uh, the, the message out there is that you have to become plant-based. So I'm constantly fighting um, this idea that, I, that you have to be plant-based to be healthy. And what, I, and what I'll do in a clinical setting, I'll say, did you know that uh, the folk in Hong Kong eat two steaks per person on average per day? And they live just as long or longer than the folk in Japan, which is the so-called blue zone example. Uh, they have never heard that. Did you know that the uh, Mormons eat a lot of meat and they live just as long as the Seventh-day Adventists who eat plants? They have, they've never heard that. So, so the first thing I tell them is, it's not necessarily about the plant or the meat necessarily. It's about eating real food. But to say that meat is bad for you is a crazy thing to say, particularly when you start to break down what's essential, which is the protein and fat and not the carbs. So I think they just need very simple examples of a rational reason to do this. Keep it culturally relevant. I do have some women that don't want to lose too much weight because in certain communities, you don't want to be skinny. It is what it is. And we talk about how can you achieve your goal and still have a body. And, and when I'll tell a, a black woman, for example, I'm not sure you need to have a BMI at 25. I mean, you know, I'll measure their risk and I'll say, you know what? You, I learned in obesity school that, you know, you're allowed to be a little bit, uh, you know, a heavier but if your metrics, if the things we measure are okay, if we measure your, your C-reactive protein and your, your uh, you know, set rate and your, your you know, apolipoprotein being all these metabolic things that we measure and they look good and you have a calcium score of zero and you, then you know what? The things that you've worried about were probably overrated. So I think they need science to support what we talk about. They need a person that talks to them with dignity and respect who's not pointing the finger at them and, and being in a community that I'm comfortable with has helped that to be a lot easier. Although I will admit some of my, our best doctors are not from that community. So, so the key is to just meet people where they are, be respectful, empathetic, give them grace, and then give them bite-sized pieces to change. Does, does your uh, uh, fix your diet, fix your diabetes book include some recipes or some direction where they can find some rest. Cause I find a lot, we need, we need uh, some guidance on what can I eat and how to fix it? What do you yeah, think? We do have, uh, it's not like extensive, like a cookbook, but absolutely there's some guidance about the, the framework about what you should eat is very simple. And it's, it's, so it's almost like, I mean, it ultimately comes down to some, animal protein, and non-starchy vegetables if you want to keep it simple. But the book does touch on that in a way that makes it easy for people. And it also gives people some options so they can be flexible. I think you're raising a very good point, which is why we need resources like the diet doctor to have like a meal planning program for people. Uh, some people, most of my patients just need a handout, which is what I have on my link tree, eat this, don't eat that. And they, and they work around that. Other people want a recipe. What do I eat? Give me the recipe. I'm going to follow it. And I think that you meet people where they are. So what I try to do, some in the book, and then when I'm in front of people, I give them resources so that they'll know what is it that they need to do. Because you just don't know what that person in front of you needs. And everybody is different. Like I did, I got a lot of my extra education virtually online some people just can't do that some people need to be in a classroom uh to have a teacher in front of them have peers to interact with and i just think that you want to provide as much of that as possible so i think it's a good point and a great question so uh, does bmi matter do you think not not as much as people think i think it's always have it's always good to have uh some guideposts uh, but if Michael Jordan, uh, or um, I'll give LeBron James as an example. So his BMI is probably 29 or 30. You know, is he obese because he's at 30? No. You know, so I think muscle mass is critical. Going back to that, that female who I may see who's concerned about losing too much weight. I say, would you be comfortable being, you know, looking like Tina Turner? So, you know, a little muscle and you're still sexy, right? 
And I just think that, so I do think that uh, BMI is not as important, particularly when we think about, well, what's of the things that we think about for metabolic health, what's the most predictive of poor metabolic health is that abdominal adiposity, right? That belly fat. So, and, and I'll be honest, there are times when that, that adiposity is there, but the BMI is not even that bad, right? So, so I just think that it's a, it's a metric that we use, but I think for me personally, I would prefer to get a, a abdominal circumference. I think that's a way better predictor. And of course, there's other tools you can measure, uh, you know, how much fat a person has in their body and there's tools there. But so I think it's overrated. And I think that abdominal adiposity should become a standard. It's mm-hmm. not yet, but every doctor should be in a position to measure that. And that'll be the best predictor, not the blood pressure, not the blood sugar necessarily. If that belly fat is there and it's covering those organs, that's a bad sign that trouble's coming. The calcium score. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And should everyone be getting a calcium score? Yeah. Well, and when you think about, you know, return on investment, right? Some people come to me and they're so worried about, am I going to succumb to the number one killer, which is heart disease? And, and what I love is that the American Heart Association also agrees that the best score to predict a future heart attack is not the EKG, is not the expensive stress test, rather it's, uh, you know, on the treadmill, on a bike or using some drug, it's actually the coronary artery calcium score, which measures how much plaque is in your arteries around your heart. Um, it's so predictive that it's almost criminal not to at least ask people to consider that test. Now, in our health system, you know, anyone over 35 can get this test. And although it's out of pocket because it's not standard of care yet, it's 50 bucks. And, and what I found, and I'm going to tell you why I think any health system would benefit from doing this. If you want to turn on return on investment, they're scanning the whole chest. So not that we want to find other things, but in fact, you know, I'll get reports that'll say something's going on with the liver. So it's going low enough to get the liver. Sometimes it's the, the lung, of course, and other organs. So, so what I find is it's a great test. And I'm going to add to that, that fasting insulin level. Uh, and, and what people need to know is that when it comes to the number one killer, which is heart disease, if you get a fasting insulin level and no test is perfect, it's um, about 6.7 times more predictive of a future heart attack than your cholesterol or your LDL. And so if I can do a simple test like that, even if it's out of pocket and get that data, to me, that's the hook I need as a clinician to then say to my patients, guess what? We now have confirmation that you're not at high risk or we have confirmation that we need to take this dietary change very seriously. People really appreciate that information. I'm still shocked, doc, that literally, I mean, it's a rare patient who comes to me who's ever been told by their doctor that they should get that, those two tests. And I think that'll change, but right now that's the current state. Why do you think we're so reluctant to order that or offer it or people ask about it? I think that most of the people who, it's almost like if somebody comes to, um, to you and ask a question about nutrition or some herbal, or e- even something as simple as uh, you know, magnesium, a lot of times they blow it off because they don't have the foundation to answer the question. A lot of times they blow it off when it relates to those insulin and calcium tests because they're like, well, what are you going to do about it? There's this, uh, there's this thought that if you order these tests, it doesn't really change anything. And they, and they honestly don't believe that it will. Either they believe that the patient won't change the lifestyle or they don't think that the lifestyle will make a difference. It's kind of your genes, you know, everybody in your family had this. And, you know, so I think most of it is not being able to take that information and to actively do something about it. Unlike, unlike us, we know that we can do something about it. We just sometimes need more information to convince people that taking this path 
of lifestyle will change their lives in ways that they had not predicted. For me, it was not just having a belly that didn't bother me or having a wife who has better blood sugars. It was mental clarity. It was the ability to focus. It was the ability to not think about food until my wife says, have you eaten yet? And most of the time I'm saying no. (laughs) And I'm not even hungry. I've never been, I've never lived a life where I ate because it was kind of time to eat as opposed to because I wasn't just dying of hunger. And I, I pretty much spent most of my adult life as a doctor just can't wait to get to lunch. I mean, it was just this thing. And now it's like, if I don't get lunch, it's not a big deal. And so it's really been, uh, it's just been nice to make that transition. And, and my patients don't believe it. And they really won't believe it until it happens. And that's why I tell people, even though I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting, um, for those who want to do that, I just tell them, don't worry about any of that stuff. Just start adopting this dietary pattern that's going to reduce all those carbs. And you'll naturally probably not want to eat as much as you did in the past. And, and that's going to give your body, what people don't know is that 60 plus percent of your energy expenditure if you are eating three meals a day and snacking in between, is going to go towards digestion. And what people also don't understand is that if that's true, then where is the energy expenditure to keep your cells from turning into cancer? Your immune system is impaired because you're digesting. So instead of helping to fight cancer, which is one of the jobs of the immune system, you're literally digesting. So so we, we have to give our body some time to heal. And one of the great things about not eating, which is so easy when you're doing carnivore, is that your body can kind of restore itself and heal. And we just want to give this human organism the opportunity to heal because it's better at that than any drug or any uh, guy in the lab who's trying to figure this out. And I just think the human organism is amazing. And we just got to give it a chance to thrive. Dr. Hampton, you're a home run here, really sharing a lot of great ideas, and I'm grateful you're sharing so many things with our community. Tell us a little bit about how you got to the carnivore side and your eating current habits are. Yeah, um, the carnivore um, is a combination of many factors. I think the first factor is guys like you. (laughs) So I've been in the low-carb space uh, for about 11 years, probably more vocal with a YouTube channel for about three plus years or so. And when the people you respect are saying, man, I feel better doing this, that was kind of a something that just kept going in my head. And then, you know, I would interview people like Dr. Georgia Ede, for example, our phenomenal uh, psychiatrist who uh, uses nutrition to help people with mental illness. And I just kept finding people, even if they didn't say it out loud initially, yeah, I pretty much eat carnivore now. And I just kept hearing that. And I was like, why is all these people I respect who are evidence-based going ahead with carnivore? So it was partly that. The other part was this ideal of an elimination diet. And what I found is I I literally was eating things that I... I literally were doing it because my wife said, well, I just made this yellow squash and she put so much love in it. And she was like, you should, you should eat just a little bit of it. Right. (laughs) And, and what would happen is I always would notice as I started to move more and more towards the, you know, from keto to carnivore over the last year and a half or so, I just always would feel less optimal when I ate plants. So, so, so having permission from the people I respect, and I'm more like a Dr. Eric Westman. I believe science should guide the day. But I also believe that my anecdotal experience personally should guide the day. And I think the best experiment is not the one Dr. Eric Westman is doing, which we please don't stop doing that, Dr. Eric Westman. But we also need to do the end, the end of one experiment. And, as, and if my body says that's best for me, and when I measure those metabolic uh, parameters that I measure, those metrics, and they look good, that's, that's, I'll, 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 I'll wait for the randomized controlled trials, but for right now, this is the optimal version of Tony. So, so that's kind of what leaned me in that direction. I've probably been more keto 
than anything. And I will, I, I do a little Nino, Ty, you know, uh, Nino, uh, Nisha Berry, uh, I almost said Taisho's, but uh, Nisha Berry, I do a little ketovore periodically because there are some plants that I tolerate, but I generally, uh, if you say what's the average day for me today, for example, uh, I ate a half a, a chicken for lunch that was roasted. And tonight I'll eat a, the largest steak we can find for dinner. And that's pretty much <laughs> that's pretty much it. I drink water. I periodically uh, indulge in coffee, but not often because uh, it's not really good for my belly. But I will indulge periodically. But for the most part, it's um, animals. And uh, I eat a lot of eggs, of course. I eat bacon, of course. And I, I, you know, like, for example, this weekend, we're thinking about Dr. Kilt's, you know, ice cream. So we purchased an ice cream maker, right? And I don't think that'll be a thing for me, but my kids are in town. They'll be here for the summer and we'll probably do some, you know, heavy cream, eggs, and maybe some monk fruit. I can probably tolerate that historically and either some chocolate or vanilla. So I I don't, I, I think it's really important if you tolerate certain things, and you really tolerate them, or you decide, you know what, I'm gonna have a day, and I kind of understand the consequences. I think it's important to allow, give people permission to do that. But as it relates to me feeling optimal, I I have too much on my plate. Rather, it's a podcast, being a doctor, being a husband, being a. I don't have time to be sick, so I don't really want to live in a, in a in a world where I make decisions that don't serve me. If it doesn't love me, then I'm not going to love it. And that's how I, that's my approach. But carnivore has been very generous to my body. Are there certain carbohydrates that you think are more damaging for people and others maybe are less damaging? And, and I know personally, I do some French fries from time to time with a lot of sour cream or duck. Yeah. Or, or duck grease mayonnaise with the grease from the steak poured all over or dipped in that and butter uh, because, because we're able to, we are able to digest carbohydrates, right? But our extensive amount of frequency or the type may be more damaging from for some uh, uh, over others. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I think, I think the first thing I start with is, you know, you know, there are certain things that are kind of known to be uh, highly allergenic, right? So um, so I start there, and I think there are certain foods that I would kind of be aware of that are potentially problematic, right? So, uh, I, you know, I'm allergic to tree nuts, which, you know, it is what it is. But so tree nuts, you have to be careful with because they tend to irritate. Um, and um, I can eat peanuts, ironically, but I just think nuts in general can be charry to your 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 GI system. Uh, another allergenic food I think about is like wheat. And, and the way we eat wheat these days probably was never good for us because you really can't eat it until you process it. Uh, I think that that's something people should be aware of. It's probably not something that humans should be eating. I mean, anything that you really couldn't eat until you invented meals should make you pause and say something's wrong. They put soy in everything, right? So soy is highly allergenic and it's in everything. And that is completely, I think, destroying our system. What's interesting is that the animal, even though eggs may be on that list of potentially allergenic, what you find is that animal-based foods, which is why they're the perfect elimination foods, they just don't tend to bother people. So anything that's processed like that wheat, I would avoid. I would avoid stuff in boxes. Uh, I just think that it's generally going to lead to some inflammation. Uh, I All of those vegetable oils that they try to turn into you know, seeds that go into oils, I think that's a disaster. I don't care if the science is not 100% in any direction. We know that taking a seed and turning it into oil is going to be a highly processed uh, proposition. So why not just take the coconut and squeeze it or the olive and do it that way? So I just think that a little common sense with this would help. And so minimizing processed food. Uh, if you're going to eat carbs, try to eat the ones that are, that are not going to 
lead to spikes in your blood sugar because the spikes uh, really cause a lot of damage. And it doesn't have to be at the level of diabetes. Uh, I have so many patients who have borderline diabetes and they're starting to have protein in their urine, which suggests they're losing muscle, which also suggests your kidneys are acting up. Their creatinine's kind of going up a little bit. And it's almost just as predictable when they get rid of those things that those things go down. So if anybody's watching this and they've been told that their borderline kidneys are not going to recover, they may have not heard of Dr. David Unwin in the, in the UK who has done the research. And yes, uh, this low-carb diet can reverse failing kidneys. Now, if it's at the end of the journey, it may be too late, but people don't believe that. And what really disappoints me the most, Doc, is I have patients after patient after patient who will go see my nephrology colleagues will see their creatinine improve, will see their microalbumin go from 3,000 down to normal. And they just don't, they don't even like, it doesn't make them blink an eye. Mm-hmm. And I just don't understand why they wouldn't be, you know, asking that patient, what did you do? My, my entire job is to help people with their kidneys. I see that your kidneys got better, which I don't see historically in my practice. They should be desperate to find out what that patient did. And what I'm finding is that they're just not. Hmm. Modern science, the, the, the doctors quite often have lost their uh, inquisitiveness in, in, in learning things and being open to these different ideas, especially in diet. Yeah. Why? What's going on? Why? It's called, it's called, uh, I know I look like I'm doing the Black Panther right now. <laughs> and shout out to that brother before he passed. He did some great work. But I'm going to tell you something. Um, I think that they have chains on them. And, 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 and what I mean by that is they're, they're not allowed to be thinkers because if they are very like afraid of this, the, the, the conventional thinking, and not following the guidelines, which are really just recommendations, right? Then they, they, they don't feel like they can deviate from that. They also don't have time to learn the things that we've learned. And I would argue they didn't make time, but I don't even think they know that there's something wrong with what they're doing. They just, they think that the guidelines that are created and going back to Nina Taisho's, which is what I almost said, she has already proven to us that these guidelines are not based on sound evidence. So, but the doctors don't know that. They don't know that there's bias. They don't know that it wasn't some randomized controlled trial. They assumed it was. So I think that their lack of being inquisitive is grounded in them not knowing that the people they were asked to trust shouldn't be trusted. And that's the main problem. And, and when they question things, they look like an outlier. They look like a unicorn. And I was just listening to a dentist, and I'm not familiar with her at all. It just popped up in my feed on YouTube. And she was talking about, you know, why flossing was not necessarily a good thing and probably had a lot to do with what's in the actual floss. And maybe you're actually introducing and then you're loosening up all the bacteria. She used the example of how you can get rheumatic heart disease, and and that's an example. And she said, "Well, why why wouldn't that be true for other things, right?" But but if she comes in front of her peers and and challenges them, she said she she got kicked out of a presentation when she started saying that. Her colleagues kicked her out. So what should happen, even when we go to like the presidential uh, candidate uh, uh, Kennedy, right? I don't. I have not looked at the vaccine stuff lately, but we, what we should not do is when somebody says something that makes you question a vaccine, you shouldn't just say he's a quack. You should say, I wonder, let's, let's look at the science. Let's take a deep dive because that's what scientists do. They're, they're supposed to, as soon as I put a paper out there, somebody should say, let's check and see. My peers should look at it and say, let's check and see if Dr. Hampton's research made sense. Instead of saying, He's, you know, crazy, doesn't know what he's talking about. That was just, you know, just focusing on that is not helpful. So I just think that we live in a world where doctors are so busy, they just are just, they're just doing what they're told. 
And when they do what they're told, they're considered a good doctor. That's how it works. We've spent so much time to go to med- get into medical school, study in residency and, and any post-residency training, and then practice. And we've learned a biblical way of working. And so we're not very good at shifting and being open to opposite ideas, which isn't so different than general science and religion and our political belief systems. Yeah, well, I, I think that um, we should have, you know, spiritual faith is one thing. Uh, faith from a science perspective may not align as well. So I just think that we need to, you know, one of the things I learned as a healthcare leader is that the people who I report to need me to be, uh, to challenge them, to provide a perspective that they can't see because they're not on the front lines anymore. And I just think that we have lost a lot of that. And, but, so I think ultimately, I, what I do have faith in is that we're gonna continue to fight this fight. I think it's a uh, grassroots fight. And I just think that the more people, including the people who watch this who are not clinicians, the more people share their successes, eventually things will change. I mean, the things that we're doing in our health system now that lend itself to wellness, we were not doing, you know, 10 years ago. So we need people who are willing to stand before those who are doing it the way that's not working and say, hey guys, let's 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 consider doing it a different way. And if we get results, then we should then cascade that out and let others experience it. So I'm really, I'm, I'm an optimist. We talked a little bit about how do you get people to <laughs> stay. I, I tend to be an optimist because I can't see the value of taking a more negative spin. I think that, I do think the world is better than it used to be, as crazy as it is. I just believe yeah. that. I don't think that I would be standing before my patients if this country was not a great country. All countries have flaws, but as I travel, we went to Dominican Republic recently, Puerto Plata, and I just think that I prefer to be here. It is an amazing place. I want to ask you a little bit about your podcast and and what you're doing in social media. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that and, uh, of course, how people can find you. Well, the podcast theme, Protecting Your Nest, is all about um, uh, an acronym, a nest and a rope. That acronym I learned when I got my master's in nutrition. It had a functional medicine component. So if you look at the roots of the functional medicine tree, if you look that up, you'll see these different things that we think are the root cause of why we get sick. Uh, Of course, nutrition is the most important uh, and I would argue maybe that the T in the nest, how we think is probably tied with that. <laughs> but we also talk about exercise, less stress, more sleep, recovering from trauma. And a rope talks about the importance of having healthier relationships, which is why, again, the support in the carnivore community. I was listening to a steak and butter gal and she had gone to uh, China to help her dad who was ill. And she talked a lot about how she missed that support, right? So relationships are important. Avoiding organisms and pollutants that can harm us are important. And then, of course, the E in the rope is about having life experiences that serve us and and protecting our emotions. So the podcast is to remind people. We can sit here and talk about carnivore and keto all day. But if we don't address... So if I have somebody in front of me, for example, that I'm seeing, and that person is in a dysfunctional relationship or a victim of trauma. If I don't address the relationship, if I don't address the trauma, there's no time to talk about keto and carnivore. I mean, you're wasting your time. So, so, So the whole point of the podcast and the YouTube channel is to help people incorporate where do I have blind spots or gaps? Is it my sleep? Is it my stress? remind them of that, and then have guests who can address those issues. Uh, so that's kind of the theme of the podcast. I used the link tree once I discovered it because you can link everything and you can kind of adjust it. So if somebody searches Dr. Tony Hampton link tree, they'll see the resources that I uh, put on there to help people have things they can do that may help them along their way. 
Well, that's fantastic. What, what is the, what again is the uh, handle that you're using on your podcast and your uh, website? Or- It'll be easy actually, because it's just Dr. Tony Hampton. So if they search my name, Dr. Tony Hampton, T-O-N-Y-H-A-M-P-T-O-N on Twitter, where we like to have fun, uh, Instagram, uh, YouTube, uh, even Facebook, I will be found there. And the link tree is a separate thing, but the link tree just has like, if they want to see that, how to do low carb video. I did a video with a day Fox, the black carnivore who I can't wait to see come back. Uh, hopefully, uh, that talks about how to do carnivore. So, so it's really about giving people tools. And I hope, uh, as I become more efficient at work, uh, to do even more in the YouTube platform because I think people need bite-sized information. They need longer episodes like this, but they also need shorter videos that speak to issues that they can kind of learn something really quick about. So it's been fun and it's busy, but it's uh, it's a necessary thing for all of us to do. Uh, Tony Hampton, uh, thank you for being here, but I have a couple other questions. What is your favorite book for inspiration? Wow, that's a great, uh, great question. Um, I'll be honest, lately, um, I have, I recently, I, I think about the five regrets of the dying a lot. Mm. I do. Um, that book is important because it keeps reminding me of the things I need to think about so that it, when I leave this place, I won't have regrets. The most important of which is to live the life that you have chosen to live, not your 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 family or your neighbor. And I just think if we honor that, we'll live our life purpose. And that's so when I decided to become the metabolic health doc, I was honoring that. I said, I want to help people become metabolically healthy. That's my purpose. And I'm going to make sure I do that. So that's the book that kind of I, I think of as a nice way to remind me. And um, do you have any sort of Netflix shows that you're particularly enjoying lately? Yeah, that's funny. Well, I, I, I definitely uh, will uh, go to, you know, it's funny before I, I am watching Suits now, uh, which has been fun. So and I never thought my wife would want to watch that. My Netflix, t- Netflix time is just me and my wife. Right. Yeah, good. But. Uh, I had not watched a new Amsterdam, um, um, uh, which is a health-based, um, it's almost like Grey's Anatomy, but everybody's already done with their training. And the, uh, the guy who leads the hospital, I think it's in New York, uh, New Amsterdam, he is altruistic. He's kind of like us on steroids. <laughs> He's just trying to save the world, man. And he doesn't care about cost or anything else. So uh, I've gotten through two seasons of that. I'll be checking out the third season. But for me, the new Amsterdam is a great hospital-based show that is all about helping people to thrive and to and, and deal with their social determinants of health, the things that have been barriers. So that's a that, that would be my recommendation for people who haven't seen it. We, we talk a lot about food and nutrition and carnivore, uh, but ultimately we, we're talking about the, the mind uh, and how we can sort of instill more inspiration in, in, in more and more of us. So Dr. Tony Hampton, I really want to thank you for such inspiration today. We're going to be continuing to look and watch you and continue inspiring everyone out there. So Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you. Thank you. I'll give you the the X's as we wrap up. (laughs) And uh, thank you for all you're doing. I'm looking forward to learning from you and the others in the carnivore community. It's been wonderful. And uh, I'm going to share this message as much as I can. And I get one other quick one. Is there any one thing you really wanted to make sure we talked about today or you got a two minute? Yeah, I think the main thing, um, and we kind of touched on it a little bit. And um, if, I, if somebody comes to me and they're not uh, interested in low carb, you know, what do you do with those people, right? And, and again, it's really about meeting people where they are. Um, I, for example, one of the books that I recommend to my plant-based patients is The Vegetarian Reset. And it's just a low carb book for vegetarians. Uh, if I, if people are nervous about keto, I say, what about low carb Mediterranean? So, so I just think that 
you got to be careful when you learn this information. You want to save everybody, right? You want to just go <laughs> fix everybody. Don't don't fix people. Meet people where they are, and and give them information that they can then maybe tweak what they're doing to allow them to get closer. But but just be a model for others. You know, model what's good, and then when people are ready, coach them along. But don't push them too hard because people have a lot of reasons why they struggle. Um, and, and, and so give them grace, allow them, tell them that struggle is expected. And, and, and I'm here to help you when you struggle because struggle is coming. So I think that's the only thing I would add. Well, again, uh, I always say that, um, the, the best things in life are the hardest to obtain. Mm. So if you're finding something a struggle and hard, just know you're going in the right direction. And you better know it. Day. So again, Dr. Tony Hampton, really appreciate you on uh, uh, on uh, Carnivore Conversations with Dr. Kiltz, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. All right, take care, buddy. All right, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. Enjoy your time with your family and uh, prayers to your uh, father-in-law. I think you said, or your mother-in-law. Yeah, uh, healing. Yeah, appreciate it. We got you, man. Thank you for all you're doing. You enjoy your day, okay? All right, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Carnivore Conversations, hosted by me, Dr. Robert Kiltz. And don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening today. Check out drkiltz.com for more and subscribe to our Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Facebook for more inspiring content every day. Take care. And see you next time.